0: Chan
1: Chronicles Venerable Master Shenhua's Hua's life and legacy Kept alive through stories told by his senior disciples In this episode We hear from Reverend Hung Shur that Master Hua's fourth guideline of no lying was a fundamental part of the social contract we hold with each other.
0: Lies are violations of a social contract. If I can't trust you, then how am I going to do business with you? If I can't trust you, how can I learn from you? I'll be defended in that place that otherwise could grow, could get useful knowledge by listening carefully. If I don't trust you, I'm certainly not going to follow you. You know, I'll be defended against you. So this is where spirituality really meets the marketplace, where the sandal hits the pavement, so to speak, where the rubber hits the road. Right?
1: I'm your host, Fabrizio Albarico. Please visit our website, dharmaradio.org, for more information about these podcasts and the people and organizations that make them possible. We are continuing our series on the six guidelines, or the five precepts applied, and today we're going to be talking about guideline number four, which is no lying and no selfishness. And it seems that all of these guidelines involve some aspect of no selfishness, and so I'm here with Reverend Hung Shur. Can you guide us through how uh, this concept of no lying has a useful
0: purpose and guiding us through our lives. Right. So Master Hua was always talking about uh, the mind ground. He said watch the mind ground and that's an analogy. The mind is like a garden and that's where the action is so to speak in a Buddhist cultivation, in a life of Buddhist spiritual practice. You watch the thoughts in the mind and you treat them like a good gardener would be decisive about weeds or tomatoes, weeds or roses, you know, weeds or apple trees. You have to decide on the spot and be uh, clear in your uh, approach to weeds. And a thought of selfishness is a weed. And you compost it. You don't kill it. You don't destroy it. You compost it. You put it back, you pull it up and put it back as fertilizer for... Just the seeds that you want to grow, which are selfless thoughts. Wise ones know we plant a seed With every word and deed Once we plant it, here comes karma now Sometimes good, sometimes bad Makes us happy, makes us sad Choose it wisely, here comes karma Karma is not heaven sent. Karma is not punishment. Sweep the garden. Here comes karma now. There's no lawyer you can call. Now, that's that's how he, he approached what are called the six guidelines. And this is guideline against thoughts of selfishness. Now, certainly Buddhism is all about freedom and liberation. But the idea is you are free to choose among these thoughts, and if you allow selfishness to take root and grow in your mind—big me, me in the middle, me only—at um, worst, you know, you can have uh, you can have a narcissistic kind of of uh, problem, mental illness of of uh, interpreting the world entirely through a lens of your own self-interest, but. More often, if it's not a, a neurosis like that, it, what it amounts to is, um, first of all, you feel lonely. Because me in the middle, me alone, everybody else is outside me, it's a very lonely place. You know, if the self is, is the first place you check to see whether you should or shouldn't do anything, then there's no room inside for connection, for a sense of, of transcending this little narrow shed of me and mine. Um, so the alternative is what the, uh, what the Buddha praised, and you could say what the Buddha worked on was, was penetrating this illusory self. Now this, this is subtle, and it, I think it's important to point out that you know, on my library card, there's my name, you know, on my driver's license. On my passport, I have a name. And it's important to have a name there. It's very useful in the marketplace and negotiating social, uh, social interaction of all kinds. But you don't take it as something fundamental or something ultimate. That's, that's I think, a useful Buddhist perspective on, on uprooting, transforming, composting thoughts of self. Now, how does, it, how does it come over to lying, is the question. In your intro, you mentioned that we're taking these guidelines uh, over to the Buddhist precepts. And the precept against lying is or false speech is fundamental, not just in Buddhism, but in all major religions' ethical codes. You know, in the Bible, it's called bearing false witness. In the Torah, you know, the the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not. Um, Lies are violations of a social contract. If I can't trust you, then how am I going to do business with you? If I can't trust you, how can I learn from you? I'll be defended in that place that otherwise could grow, could get useful knowledge by listening carefully. If I don't trust you, I'm certainly not going to follow you you know I'll be defended against you so this is where spirituality really meets the marketplace where the sandal hits the pavement so to speak where the rubber hits the road right? <laughs>
1: also where uh, Buddhism and Confucianism meet,
0: perhaps? Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, And the key word is integrity. Or Confucius used the word e, righteousness. So the righteous person can't, words can be trusted. And the Confucian model was a superior person. Confucius called him a junzi. A junzi is anybody ordinary a a superior person is not by birth, it's by behavior. And a superior person, uh, male or female, gender nonspecific, is someone who is as good as their word, right? Trustworthy. Um, And so the idea is, if you, why is lying connected to selfish, selflessness? And I think Master Hua, uh, following the Buddha, interpreted these guidelines completely pragmatically. It's not that we like you more, if the Buddha likes me, if I tell the truth. It's that if I don't tell the truth, it will impact my meditation and therefore my path to liberation from suffering. Um, when And here's here's how it came down to to we Americans. We were at City of 10,000 Buddhas in the midst of a 10-day meditation retreat. And it was about the uh, fourth or fifth day and everybody was, you know, we just finished lunch and we were more asleep than awake and heads were nodding on all sides. And Master Hua came in and uh, walked around and said, do you know why I tell you no lying? Heads are shooting up on all sides. He says, "Do you know what the effect on the waters of the mind is of a single lie?" We're like, blink, blink. No, I, I, I never thought of that. You know, I never thought of that. Sure. No, I don't. Tell me, what is the effect on the water of the mind of a single lie? He says, "You tell one lie. It's like dropping a rock into the still." calm waters of the mind, and 100 false thoughts ripple out from that rock. When will you see down to the bottom of your mind again? Well, how long does it take for 100 waves of false thoughts to calm after one rock? He said, how many lies have you told today? Count the waves and he stomped out of the Buddha hall, (laughs) and that was that, he dropped that on us, and it was so graphically clear, you know, and I think, gee, how many ways are there to lie? You can lie by omission, you can lie by inference, by hinting, you can lie with your body, you know, and how many waves of false thoughts did I stir up on the waters of my mind today, you know, and oh my goodness, So I thought, that's really interesting. The impact of a lie on the meditative mind is intense. And and you think about people whose livelihood depends on stretching the truth. Suppose you're in the advertising department of a software firm, and you know that it was time to get the product out, shrink-wrapped and out the door, and you knew it had bugs in it. The claims that you were making didn't pass inspection but you the, the labels are already printed so you put it out the door you know and you have to go market a buggy product or suppose you're part of a like a doctor uh, and you've accepted a, a product you have to promote a product because your salary is being paid by being subsidized by a drug manufacturer and you know there are side effects and you can't talk about them, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Suppose you're a lawyer. My dad was a lawyer. And my goodness, suppose you your livelihood entirely depends upon convincing the members of the jury or the judge about something that you clearly know is half-truth or no-truth. You know, how sad, because all those ripples in the mind. And at some point, you might think, oh, it's time to... To see, to figure out what I'm all about. And when you meditate, you discover all this splashing, these waves on the water. You can't meditate because there's too much turbulence up there. Totally because we were in a, a marketplace world that rewarded monetarily, let's say, lying.
1: wondering, in your 40-plus years of being a monk um, and being in the context of the 1970s and being with Master Hua and talking about lying at that time versus lying now, it seems that the, the stakes have gotten even more strikingly clear now in terms of the, the truth is, is not even agreed upon anymore, even if it's scientifically based. Um, what, what do you think has changed I mean, if in the collective mind, if you will, of, of all these ripples and what impact is this having? Could, because, you know, more more people are becoming Buddhists, more people are becoming uh, meditators, and m- this term of mindfulness is being bandied about, um, and more people are trying to be mindful, and yet there's this other current that is causing even more waves, it seems.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a fascinating question. Actually, I hadn't thought of it in those terms. The Buddha said there are three, three distinct ages in the lifetime of a world, he said. There's the, the time of the, the, the right Dharma, which is 100 years, the Buddha's lifetime, and then 100 years after. Then there's the time of the Dharma image, or the semblance of the Dharma which is, what, 500 years after, I forget. Then there's the time of the Dharma's demise. And Hinduism had a similar breakdown. They call it the Kali Yuga. The time of the Dharma's demise was a thousand years and on after that. So uh, check my numbers. But the, we're now in the time of the Dharma's demise. And in the time of the Dharma's demise, they say, it's much, much harder for people to hear principle and have it go, mm, ding, resonate in their minds. So that's been a, you know, that's the way we've been thinking about uh, the time we're in. It never occurred to me that one of the effects, one of the uh, symptoms of the time of the Dharma's demise was that truth itself becomes up for question. That never occurred. It's kind of like, uh, it's as if you were uh, worried a lot about a coat of paint on the top of your dock, only to discover when you go down, you dive into the lake, that the whole foundation of the dock has been eaten through by, by barnacles or by rot, and you're worried about a coat of paint on the top, and in fact, the whole thing is about to fall in. Now, that's kind of the time we're in that never occurred to me that that could be at the risk you know the dharma is fine nothing nothing has changed from the Buddhist time and you could say nothing has really changed in human nature we're still the same people still seeking a way home you know let's say f- what is freedom well that's hard to agree on but that longing for a place to belong a place where you feel connected to your your source, your roots, where you that hasn't, nobody's arguing about that. No matter whether it's a Christian robe or a Taoist cap or Buddhist sandals, you know, uh, we're all looking for home. So none of that changes, but in between are these layers of confusion. And currently, and I, I won't name any names because it's It's not even for sure that the current resident of the White House is the problem. He's a symptom of a deeper problem. There are lots of people in uh, the land of the free and the home of the brave who prefer to be lied to, who will take anything they're told, who don't even raise the question, is it true or not? Truth is what comes out of Fox News. Truth is what comes out of their TV or their computer. And that's a difficult time. Because let's say before the current situation that we're in, which is approximately two years, um, at least you didn't have to, in, in the public sphere, you didn't have to agree, you didn't have to come to agreement on truth. Truth was pretty much understood to be something we all more or less agreed upon. But now, before you can get to deeper principles you have to first check and see if the superficial stuff is something we we're, we're now fighting about that's the dharma ending age that's the kali yuga the mofa Shudai. japanese call it mapo which is mofa dharma end the time of the dharma's end and that's that's really scary that it's the the dock is falling in because it's rotten from below it's going to collapse into the lake and you won't tie up your boat to it because it doesn't stand anymore. Never mind the coat of paint outside. You know, the mm-hmm. whole thing is collapsing.
1: You mentioned the the land of the free and the home of the brave, and this brought up to me this this idea of freedom and how this Western or American concept of freedom is quite different than the freedom the Buddha talked about, right? It's like, it's now it's become even the freedom to to see your own version of the truth rather than that self-arising freedom that comes through discipline. What can you say about Master Hua's approach to discipline, which brought about that self-arising freedom, the true freedom? Yeah.
0: Well, it was... Uh when he arrived and started to really teach Westerners, when Westerners started to discover that there was this Chan master in, in San Francisco, it was the time of, if it feels good, do it. Or do it again. You know, it was, Master Hua taught, we, uh, one mile from where he taught on 15th Street was Haight-Ashbury. And the Summer of Love uh, was just, two years before the first five monks and nuns set forth to become monastics. So San Francisco was the epicenter of the freedom that we were seeking. If I were to capture the freedom that Master Hua reflected coming from the Buddha, who reflected what was coming from his mind, right? If you said Master Hua's teaching, he would say, no, 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 this is from the Buddha. The Buddha would say, no, no, this is from the mind, You know, so where is this freedom? The issue is transcending duality. A lot of what was going on in Haight-Ashbury was pushing against, against the restraint of, um, back then it was conformity, which was what, Second World War was a shock. Second World War was indescribable destruction humanity's worst 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 side came out and by I was born in 49 just four years after the end of World War II and my father's generation uh, sought a conformity everybody wore a Brooks Brothers suit button-down collar had took a briefcase to work worked nine to five got a house, got a station wagon, you know, got a wife, two kids, and two and a half kids and a dog, you know, and it was Eisenhower was president. He was a retired general, and everybody was reaching for something stable after the horrors that had swallowed the world up. So uh, the, now that's not entirely true, because outlaws, loners, fugitives, uh the, the anti-hero also was born at the same time, people reacting against the reaction. But the at that time, the hippie movement or the beat movement was the first movement out of it of the, the beatniks in San Francisco. They were reacting against the conformity, which was a reaction against the horrors Of humanity's ability to destroy itself so all of those reactions to reactions are still in duality it's I don't like what I see so I'm going to do the opposite right what Master Hua taught was look within your mind find principle then embody it teach it And wake people up to their potential to transcend affliction, suffering, misery, the blues, and help other people wake up as well. That's the message of the Mahayana. It's not so much leave the world. That's all you have to do is, you know, at the time it was easy just drop some acid or whatever was available. Which was multi, you know, readily available, but here was 15th Street Gold Mountain Monastery uh, in San Francisco, where I I was living in a Berkeley commune. I was a grad student in Berkeley, and up in the Berkeley Hills, we had a our local source had a license plate on his his Rolls Royce, which was into it. Whatever it was, he was into it, and he could get you into it too, right? So that was decidedly. Bizarre, uh, countercultural, and seeking escape from Vietnam, largely, and the draft and all of that. But I left that, got in my Volvo, drove across the Bay Bridge, wound up outside Gold Mountain Monastery's doors in a converted mattress factory in the Mission District, 15th and Valencia, right across the street from the projects. So it was San Francisco's poorest neighborhood, no doubt a mile on foot from Haight-Ashbury where everything was available that could take you out of the world, right? And for a price, of course. And stepping inside and having the distinct feeling that somehow I had stepped into the Tang Dynasty of China. I might have been on a mountain. Uh, The Tang Dynasty was, you know, 700 to 1000 of the common era. And it was chilly, there was incense smoke in the air, and people were meditating on both sides of the hall, sitting straight up and working on their minds. And when, that, when the bell rang and it was time to, to uh, stop meditating, they walked into the dining room, sat down at a class learning Chinese so that they could translate Buddhist texts that Master Hua was explaining every day, twice a day, in order to find the Buddha's voice and see how it applied to the world outside the door, where the summer of love and the human beings at Golden Gate Park were taking place. So his version of dealing with... The conflict of the 60s and 70s was to look deeply within yourself find wisdom and apply it immediately to the world around you that by waking yourself up you will be able to go through duality you're not making a choice between conformity or rejection of conformity you're not making a choice between marketplace and the, the way place, you know, the bodhimanda, the, the place of cultivation. You're making a choice between wisdom and the lack of wisdom, between wisdom and, and confusion. And you are the measure of that. So what a wonderful... My, in fact, my mother, uh, my mother, a, a strong... Methodist churchwoman, a former Southern belle from Kansas City, Missouri, uh, met Master Hua, and at first she she was afraid that he had slipped something into my teacup that had made me lose my wits and decide to be a Buddhist monk. You know, but after she met him, she realized that's not the story with this monk. She actually said he he's got wisdom, and that word was not in her vocabulary. So she wrote him a letter. and said, I want to thank you, she said, for providing a sane alternative to all the confusion that was going on for young people around the time of the Vietnam War and the time of tune turn-in, drop-out. You gave them, she said, an alternative that produced wholesome human beings. The The most Christian Buddhists I've ever met, she'd say. <laughs> you know, she recognized <laughs> in, in the the kind of humanity that Master Hua was educating us was the the principles of Jesus, the best principles of Christianity, that many Christians, you know, took for granted. Uh, but in in the Buddhists that she met, she found people who genuinely esp- espoused uh, kindness and compassion, and turning the other cheek, and working hard to benefit others. So, that's suddenly there was meaning in the midst of that, and. As soon as to you know, uh, back to our you know our fourth guideline: no selfishness. Self was an obstacle, and it was a choice, and you could be selfish. And Silicon Valley, with all of the me too, uh, me alone, not me too, but me only. You know, uh, not related to to misogyny, but the selfishness of of Reagan. You know, which followed in the eighties. That that was. uh, to totally misunderstand the Dharma. Buddhist practice was to unpack, to deconstruct this illusory self and to realize that we learn the self probably when we're in the womb. As soon as mom pats us and gives us our name, you know, we kind of get that sense of me. And it's useful, it's not ultimate. And if you take it as the real story, it'll trip you up every single time.
1: That concludes this episode of Chan Chronicles. Many thanks go out to the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery and Reverend Hung Shur for their hospitality. Our website, once again, dharmaradio.org, has much more for you to click through. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you'll be sure to receive new episodes of Chan Chronicles as soon as they're available. Amitofo.